From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. The unexplored life is not worth living. The more people that get this knowledge, the more people that use this knowledge, the better we all will be. Get ready for an exciting journey into the powers of our memory and the powers of our mind. ReSound is a remix of documentaries, stories, music, found sound, sound bites, and oddities that we dig up where no one else is looking. On the web, on the air, on the minds of producers, freshmen, and senior. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we go all the way to Ireland to bring you a new show called Flux, produced by Ronan Kelly. It's a show that usually profiles one person and then explores the defining characteristic or event or obsession that gives this person their je ne sais quoi, their raison d'être, their... Mm, I've run out of French phrases. We're going to hear two episodes of Flux today. The first about an unlikely contestant on Ireland's most popular game show, and the second about a man obsessed with all things Greenland, to the exclusion of just about everything else, including his marriage. Stay with us. Roger Dowds may have been the least likely person in Ireland to be a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It's not that he wasn't smart enough or quick enough. It's that nothing in the life of this shy, introverted man indicated that he would have the will, the confidence, the moxie to put himself to the test on national television in front of thousands and thousands of people. But in January of 2001, he did just that. This is the story of Roger Dowds by Irish producer Ronan Kelly. Roger doesn't have a video recorder, so we couldn't watch the tape in his house. These ads seem so old, don't they? I don't recall them at all, you know. Do you remember your man was Um, in all the Statoil ads? mm, Oh, I do, yes, yeah. yeah. Excuse me, ladies. The fellow from Statoil was on the telly that night, flirting with women. I was wondering, how do you take your coffee? White. You remember him. With sugar. The tall, blonde, self-assured Norwegian. Who sold us petrol and croissants for a couple of years. Just the kind of Viking Norwegian <laughs> or whatever. Roger was on the telly that night too. Roger Dowd from Dublin. January 2001. Were you told to wave? Oh yes, they made a big issue about waving and smiling and looking and as happy as possible. from Dublin. He was a contestant in the quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I should have put the word unlikely in there. Roger was an unlikely contestant, and you'll find out why as the programme unfolds. Silence in the studio, please. This is your question. Starting with the largest, arrange these Mediterranean islands in order of size. Starting with the largest. Crete. Cyprus, Sicily, Malta. Well, there was a phone number you could ring on RT, obviously, and I rang many times anyway, with no luck. And eventually I got a call from someone to say I'd been shortlisted. It was a couple of days before the show, you know, they said, oh, you're allowed to have five phone friends. I don't have many close friends, so I got two of my brothers. I got someone I play table tennis with I got someone a husband of someone I play badminton with uh, a friend of my brother's I think they were the five who got there quickest two right answers but Roger Dowd's beat it at 4.9 seconds 4.9 seconds 
you know, I wasn't one of these so-called professional quiz people, you know. I, you know, I, I'm not an outgoing enough person to be like that, really, you know. To, like, people were astounded that I, I would think of going on who wants to be a millionaire. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our next contestant is Roger Dowds. He works as a maintenance assistant in a nursing home and he lives in Glasnevin in Dublin. And he specifically wants me to mention that his mother, Nora, is deceased but would be very proud indeed to see him on this show. Why did you say that? Well, I still was getting over my mother's death somewhat at the time. She, wasn't, she was about three years dead at the time. Um, and she had been <laughs> such a part of my life. <laughs> Probably was quite concerned about my future, you know, when she died. And if he won a million, he says, he'd help the residents of the nursing home where he works to buy a place and run it however they please, and then he would love to have enough money. You know, because you don't really believe you're going to be on and you go through a lot of questions, you know, what you might say in a circumstance. And, you know, I kind of said something very frivolous or expecting not to ever be saying anything, you know. All right, good luck to you. Let's play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And for £100, answer this one, Roger. In the 1968 cartoon, what was the colour of the Beatles submarine? Was it blue, yellow, green or red? Um, yellow, OK. For £100, yellow is right. You got £100, Roger. Financially, how were things at the time? Was that an, an interest for you? I, uh, yes, it was a factor. Um, I, I never... <laughs> I never had sort of full-time employment ever in my life. I was at the time working in this home, but, you know, I was only working part-time. And I might have done the odd little odd job, but, you know, I was on a, an extremely low income. So, you know, I suppose the money aspect could be significant to me in my position. And not the other name for the bill. Bill? It's my answer. For £500? Yeah. You got it. It's the bill, £500. Did you practice first? No, there wasn't time to practice. I, I didn't practice at all. I remember going in the day and there were all the other contestants and they were, you know, some of them were poring over quiz books. And, I, you know, I just was trying to cope with being there and sort of like they made a tremendous day out of it. It was, you know, you were kind of treated like royalty. You know, we were chauffeur driven in and we... I think we got a very special lunch that no one else in RTE was getting. And <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, something different is happening today because I, I saw some of the people that I recognised who were actors in Fair City and, I don't know, one or two, someone who's in sport in RTE and, you know, different, you know, saw these people and I don't know whether I'm starstruck or not. No doubt about that one. You have a £1,000. Gammon is the right <laughs> Now, you can never sit in the chair where Roger is sitting if you don't take those telephone numbers. They're 1550-7171-7171. remember that phone number for the rest of my life. <laughs> Do you want to tell the audience what happened to you in Morocco, Roger? Well, I, oh, no, I don't. You're going to make me anyway. <laughs> I was there last month, in fact, in December. I didn't so really want to be distracted by anecdotes. No Moroccan <laughs> Durham, as they call the currency there, so being sort of a bit shy and retiring, I wanted to get rid of him and <laughs> all I could find was an Irish... Where does this sensitivity come from and this lack of confidence come from? 
Um, I'm still trying to work that one out. Um, well, I was un, un, uncommonly close to my mother and I was um, reluctant to go out into the world and do things as a result. I, I you know, was almost reclusive in kind of way because I didn't go out and I, I did go to college for a while and it didn't work out. This is in your early 20s? Yeah, I was about 21 at the time. GAA fan, are you? I'm actually not particularly, but I'm... I had that answer before the counties came up, so I think I have, to, I have to go with that. Final answer, Kildare? Final answer. And it makes you worth £8,000, Roger. You know, my father, I suppose, was a little distant from us, you know. It was hard to um, get any sense of you know, what he expected from us or, you know, I, I, I sort of feel in some ways he was a bit childlike. So sometimes I felt I, I was fighting for my mother's affection with him, you know, and and we had this kind of slightly niggly sort of relationship as a result. Um, and he was, you know, he was a great handyman around the house, tremendously good that way. And sometimes I'd be sort of roped in to... Um, assist you know to hold the hammer or to do this and I always found this very um, traumatic I, I you know I had this sense of you know that I was doing the wrong thing you know I wasn't um, I, I suppose we were all a bit on our own little wavelength I was somewhat younger than the rest so I, I think that um, separated me a bit um. I feel, as it's, it's a historical question now, I have a brother who's, he is a bit of a historian, like he studied history, so um, I think maybe I should phone him as my brother Robert. Brother if, Robert. Okay. Robert. Hello. Hello, Robert. Yes, hello. Good, good evening to you. This is Gay Byrne on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Hello. And your brother Roger has made it to the hot seat. And he needs your help in answering the question, all right? Thanks very much. There are four possible answers to this question. The next voice you hear will be his. And Roger, you have 30 seconds starting now. Uh, Robert, uh, where did the Ascard land guns for the Irish volunteers in July 1914? Uh, was it Banastrand, Skerry, Hoth, or Arklow? Hoth. Thank you very much. You're sure about that? Um, yeah. About 95%. I, okay. thought it, I thought it might be that myself, so thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Um, I go with that. Um, Hoth. Hoth. Final answer? Final answer. Could Roger be right in saying Hoth for the answer? We'll take a break here. Come back to us after this. Thank you. Can you remember the day you decided that college wasn't for you or that college wasn't working out? Oh, I didn't feel part of anything uh, there. I, um, and, you know, I had all sorts of essays and assignments that I was supposed to have done and I hadn't started on anything. And I just one day I, I didn't go in and uh, like I was so lacking in resources to deal with things then that I, I couldn't tell anyone I actually um 
pretended for a whole term to to go to college and I, I spent most of the days you know like a homeless person walking around town or um, whatever I did I brought in my sandwiches as I normally had done and my brother in particular was trying to get me to go back but you know it just didn't seem possible it was simple as that Ascard land guns for the Irish volunteers in July 1914 he had to check with his brother Robert Robert said Holt he went with Holt that was his final answer and it means he's worth 16,000 pounds you're listening to Flux with Ronan Kelly in this programme Roger Dowds, who, despite being extremely shy, decided to enter the quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The next question is worth £32,000, Roger. OK, Kay. have a look at it. Who was the first person to run a mile in under four minutes? I couldn't believe my luck with this question. Sebastian Coe, Harold Abrahams, you're shaking your head. Yeah, because I'm going to know it before I, I see any answers. Well, I think you arranged this question for me, because... Just happens it's my namesake, Roger Bannister. I've always had an interest in athletics, so I'm quite sure about this one. Roger Bannister, in 1954, I believe it was. <laughs> Roger, don't confuse me with dates. I'm sorry, yeah. Sorry. Just I felt I should be offering more information. Whatever about the angels, uh, Roger. I think Mum is looking after you as well, is she? Because she is. you just won thirty-two thousand. <laughs> the crowd seemed to get particularly enthusiastic at that point. You must have all those checks written out, do they? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. There's no writing involved. <laughs> thirty-two thousand pounds, and you get to keep that. Nobody no can take what. that from you. No matter what, that's yours. Okay. okay? And you're right, Bannister did run the mile in 1954. Okay. Not that we asked you, but thank no. you for telling us anything. <laughs> now you have 32,000. Did your mother encourage you to go out into the world? She did try and encourage me. When I left college, she was always looking at courses that I might do, you know, because I used to do the garden at home or I did a bit of cooking at home, you know, oh, will you do a cookery course, will you do a gardening course, will you, you know, just to see me doing something. But then, you know, I gradually, as my parents got older, they, they became, started becoming infirm and I did become more of a benefit, you know, because I, I just became their, you know, chauffeur and stuff like that. Was it a time you felt think, good about yourself? I think I got felt better, you know, that I, I had some little sense of duty in doing something. Because when I was first at home and my parents were still a bit active, you know, it was, you know, I remember literally um, sometimes the people came in during the day and maybe they thought I should be out. You know, I'd actually hide, literally hide under the bed, you know, a grown man in his 20s or... Uh, just to avoid, you know, having to explain myself. For that must have made you so angry. Um, I, I, you know, I was very. Um, I, I couldn't express anger. You know, I was such a. I, I don't know, such a. Well, withdrawn from anger, like I was angry some way, but I didn't recognize it as anger. I, uh, well, I was so full of self-hatred, I, I, you know, I didn't have any sense of self-esteem. So I think because of that, I couldn't do things at all. I, Where did the self-hatred come from? Well, 
I probably didn't have a sense of my father loving me. <laughs> I'd, I probably, you know, did crave something from him that I wasn't getting. You know, I didn't recognize that at the time, but, um, you know, I, you know I, I would hate to say he was, uh, you know, he wasn't a hateful person anyway. He, he, he'd had a, a traumatic upbringing. His, his mother had died when he was eight. Um, I think as I've nothing to lose, I shall go for Venus as my final answer. That's your final answer? Final answer. Venus final answer. <laughs> you had 32,000 pounds, Roger. You now have 64. The biscuits are from the Waterbury Cookery book. My Tea in Roger's house. Biscuits he's made himself that are sold in a country market. And on the table, a plate bought by his family as part of a set to support the Protestant side in the Feathered on Sea boycott. A sectarian row between Protestant and Catholic in Wexford in 1957. And she compiled a cookery book which seemed to go all around Protestant communities around Ireland. Roger's Protestantism has been significant for him. When he felt isolated as a child, the fact that he was part of a minority community emphasised that isolation. The fact that he was part of that small community has also drawn him out of the house into the world in a safe way. He travels miles to play racket sports and clubs which used to be exclusive to his church, something which is no longer the case and he's glad of that. He goes out to play the organ at church services and through the church community he found work in a retirement home set up originally for Protestant residents. I mean, it has been a tremendous experience over the years. I, you know, I met some very special people who have, well, passed away because they were old. And I had a very, well, my mother died at the end of 1997. And shortly after that, a woman called Joyce Shouldice came into the home and she just was... Uh, tremendous, excuse me, crying, but gift to me at the time. She, just for her, you know, from the generation she came from, she was a person of rare understanding and uh, you could tell her anything and she was unshockable and, um, you know, because of the kind of maybe slightly narrow environment I've been living in, I felt... um, you know, things had to be kept secret and um, kind of hidden. And, um, you know, suddenly I got this different perspective. I feel very strongly that it's, that it's Patrick Kavanagh. I think Louis McNeese died earlier than 1967. So I'll go for Patrick Kavanagh um, as my final answer. Final answer. Final answer, Gay. No turning back. No turning back. We've gone to Orange. That was one of the most surprising pieces of thinking I've seen on the show so far. And it's one you are hoping to
Around the time I was on a Once Me Millionaire, I started going to a counsellor who I'm still going to. I think she's, you know, helped with sort of relieving me of the, the awful kind of self-hatred. Why did you decide you needed her? I got very friendly with a, a, quite an elderly man. And um, as I say, it was the summer just before I went to school. And, um, oh, co sorry, college, yeah. And I used to go and visit him. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, he started abusing me. And although I was 18, I, you know, I suppose I was 12, you know, I'd, I hadn't had sex education of any kind. I, I, um, I did, you know, I didn't really consent to anything, but I allowed this to happen for about a year. And... Uh, I don't know, because I suppose in some way I valued <laughs> his attention. Then I, you know, finally, because I'd never not confided in my mother, so I, I did eventually confide in her about this. And it, it, it was a very difficult thing for her. She was used to kind of sweeping things aside, putting them under the carpet. Did I you lost a little bit of something with my mother that day, you know. It was, I'm sorry, I missed that. You, you what? I kind of lost a little bit of something with my mother. I, I, you know, I, I, I idealised her so much and, you know, she was so wonderful. And, um, and did you go back to the, the elderly man? I went once, but I, I didn't. I remember going once to the door and talking to him and I, I made up some outlandish story and, well, lies. <laughs> Um, so as a result of that, he, 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 you know, kind of didn't want to have anything more to do with me <laughs> anyway. Um, I suppose I pretended I'd gone off with someone else, you know. Um, <laughs> did he think there was something else in what you were doing? How do you mean, sorry? Well, did he see it as a, in the same way as you did or did he see it as something else? Did he see it as abuse or did he see oh, it as no, a relationship? I, I, no, he probably saw it as a relationship or something. Um, he, he, I don't think he, he would have had any sense of the <laughs> abuse I was feeling. Uh, at that point, um, I think I, I could have let anyone <laughs> do anything to me, you know, I... I You know, I'd so little self-esteem. I suppose I couldn't. I could, you know, I couldn't. You know, it's like as if I became mute and I couldn't shout stop. I'm very sure I know this one, Gay. <laughs> I couldn't believe the audience's response. <laughs> that we're gonna. Collapse. Quickly, They're really behind you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, then extraordinary. Perhaps, may I explain the situation yeah. you're in, Roger? <laughs> you have £125,000. You walk now. There's the cheque. I have it. You can walk now with that. If you go for this and get it wrong, you lose 
93,000 pounds. <laughs> it's a bit drastic, all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I do know a bit about birds, and that is my final answer. Okay. Final answer. Final answer. You had a hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds, Roger. You now have two hundred. The old audience had won us themselves. Imagine having to take home a cartload of money. Or... If I want to shed a few tears now, all I was going through my head was that Gay Byrne himself had lost a lot of money. Don't start crying on me at this day. <laughs> the next question is worth half a million pounds. I feel the... I want to look at it actually. <laughs> look at it. Okay. Ah, now what do you think of that? What does a vexillologist study? I didn't think much. A vexillologist um, study. Is it? I think my brain had seized up. I, I couldn't scorpions. come up with anything. Flags or skin diseases. Vexillologist. And if you look at me and say, funnily enough, Gay, I know the answer. Funnily enough, I know You were very entertaining, weren't you? <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised, you know, how many people thought I was entertaining. No, um, I'll have to be quite honest. Were you disappointed? Um, you hadn't got an easy one. Well, I, I couldn't believe my luck up to that. I, I, you know, I was carried on and the tide of wanting to keep going, just not even to do with the money, just I was enjoying being up there in some way. So I, I didn't want to stop. <laughs> What's the word? I, I shall retire now, or whatever I should say. Um. To get all this positive feedback from other people was extraordinary. To, to feel I was, you know, worth something and, and people could admire me. And <laughs> it says, pay Roger Dowds £250,000. Take it with our blessing and our thanks to a lovely, lovely competitor. And, and did friends and family deal differently with you afterwards? Not enormously. I, I, well, I think they admired me for having done it, but um, like I'm the youngest of my family and I think maybe I was always seen as very kind of vulnerable or sensitive or and maybe they felt the less reason to be worried about my future. So what has that future been for Roger? What did he do with the hundreds of thousands? Well, he uses it as an income to supplement part-time work, gardening and house-minding. It also allows him time to visit elderly people and do messages for them. I was persuaded that I, you know, that I absolutely had to get an alarm for the house. I went on a nice organised cycling holiday in France, I remember, and I went skiing. I'd never been skiing. Curiously, Roger counts his winnings from who wants to be a millionaire, not in terms of money, but in measures of self-confidence. Well, I think I'm a lot less shy than I was, perhaps. I'm, you know, I've more sense of 
well-being within myself, you know, I don't, I don't have the awful self-hatred. In his modest house, with his very modest car outside, Roger has one luxury to show for his night on the telly with Gay, a piano organ. That was an episode of Flux, produced by Ronan Kelly on RTE Radio 1 in Dublin. When we asked Ronan if he thought that this story had a happy ending, he replied, there's no such thing. Life is filled with moments of happiness made real by moments of the ordinary and depressing. It's all about a process, a flow, flux. One of the most interesting things about Ronan's show is that he truly lets the events of the story unfold without interference from the narrator. He purposely doesn't do much research before he conducts an interview, so that as he discovers the story, we do too. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today on ReSound, we went all the way to the UK to find a show we wanted you to hear. That's what we do. We'll go to the ends of the earth to bring you great audio. And what do we ask in return? Not a pledge, not a donation, at least not now. No tote bags involved whatsoever. All we ask is that every now and then, you send us a little email and tell us what you think. Send your comments and questions to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. The first thing that we have to understand and comprehend is that we think in pictures. What exactly is a vivid picture? A vivid picture is something in your mind that you can see in color, in detail. It's crystal clear. It's specific. You can smell smells, hear sounds, feel feelings. It's in color. You can hear the sounds. You can smell the smells. It's a very specific picture in your mind. Our next story is the story of an obsession. And like most obsessions, it started taking over someone's life. In the fifth episode of Ronan Kelly's new show, Flux, we meet Adrian Vernon Fish, a man whose interest, hobby, whose personal curiosity turned into an obsession, and then slowly, other things in his life important things, started falling by the wayside. Adrian Vernon Fish has a grand piano under his bed. When he's lying in the bed, he looks up at a big map of Greenland stuck to the ceiling. Music and Greenland the twin obsessions of Adrian Vernon Fish. And he has paid some price for them. (laughs) Drumslide National School, one of the tiniest schools in Ireland. The yard looks west to Ackle, behind and to the south is Westport, and the other way is Ballina. Their neighbour Adrian's jeep pulls up. Back seats are down. Inside he has a suitcase on wheels, display panels, 
Lots of ordinary sized boxes. What's in this? Oh, carvings, sculptures, furs, you name it. And two big long flight cases with aluminium edges. So we've got a dead body in there, Miss Evan. Set the chairs out for the kids. It takes them an hour to get everything ready. Uh, is there anyone I can change? I've got my hat outfit to get into. Yeah, this is the teacher's toilet up there. Just at the top of the hallway. Oh, just right at the As the children file into the room where Adrian is, they're facing a display that stretches about 13 feet. At the back are the display panels. Over the tops of the panels are draped various animal furs. On the panels themselves are a map of Greenland, a poster of different whale types found in the waters around Greenland, photos of people living and hunting in Greenland. On the tables in front of the display panels are carvings of polar creatures, a model of a dog sled, a model of a canoe, models of harpoons and other implements, and books of photos of Greenland. On the floor in front of the tables are other pieces, like two picture frames, one containing an Eskimo drum and the other with a large circular doily made out of small glass beads. One other item on the floor is what looks like a model sailboat, but is actually a hide used by hunters in Greenland. There's a picture of this and the whole display on the Flux page on rte.ie. Adrian himself comes in. He's part of the display too. He's wearing a fur hat with earmuffs, a white cotton windsheeter, fur trousers and fur boots. Now, I'm here to talk about Greenland, and it's a country that most people forget. You've probably all heard of Greenland, but can anybody tell me where it is in the world? The lecture is an hour long. It starts off earnest enough. It's the world's biggest island. Lots of facts and figures. It's the northernmost land in the world. Good educational stuff. On a good summer's day, a really good summer's day, the temperature will be zero. That is a hot day. But then Adrian gives them what they want. Horror bodily functions, money, more bodily functions, disgust and laughs. Not necessarily in that order. And his skin will be enormous. First the horror. Absolutely enormous. He tells them a story of going out one day with a friend in Greenland who encourages them to climb up on an iceberg with him. I'd never climbed an iceberg before and it's not very easy. And I eventually got to the top, I fell down two or three times, eventually got to the top and we sat down on the top of this iceberg and we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about sport, about music, about politics, about all sorts of useless things. When they're on top of the iceberg, they spot a polar bear. From behind a nearby lump of ice, this head sort of emerged. It was like a head peeping round a door. And this bear looked round, you know, hello. And I tell you, and I'm sure I'm not exaggerating, his paws, they were as big, if not bigger, than that clock on the wall there. The friend, a local Greenland hunter, decides to kill the polar bear because he says he needs new trousers. Only the bravest hunters in Greenland wear polar bear trousers, explains Adrian. So the hunter sets his pack of snow dogs on the polar bear. And there was a scuffle, a real scuffle. We never caught the bear, but the bear killed one of the dogs. He just took that paw, as I say, the size of a dinner plate, and he just whacked this dog. Knocked him maybe, I don't know, 10 metres, 15 metres. Just wham, this 60 kilo dog went wang, you know, landed with a broken back over there somewhere. And it's that one there. And then Adrian reaches over and takes a fur from on top of one of the display panels. That's dog fur. It was a fairly old dog. There's not a lot of fur left on his neck. But uh, he was killed by one blow from a polar bear. They are probably the most dangerous animal 
with the possible exception of the hippopotamus. Adrian explains that the 50,000 people in Greenland are descended from tribes who originated in Mongolia. He's tried to learn the language. We say, I intend to go to the big school. Now, that's eight words. But you can put all that together as one word in Greenlandic. That's one word. And I'd been practicing some of my Greenlandic words, and I saw a very small, very elderly lady walking up the road, and I said, oh, it's a, it's a little lady. And the guy I was with sort of shook his head and laughed and said, pardon? I said, and I pointed to her. Uh, no, not Angangawapok, you mean Angangawapok. You said, she is a little shit. <laughs> it's very easy to make mistakes in another language. Fortunately, he thought it was very funny. Adrian's lecture is punctuated with him picking things up from the table behind him. At one point, he picks up a very small carving of a polar bear shaped from a piece of narwhal tusk. It's only about three inches long. And narwhal tusk is, is a lovely, pure creamy white colour. The kids are mildly interested and until he gets to the antiques roadshow bit, the money. You would probably pay upwards of 300 euro for that. Yeah. Because there's a lot of carving gone into that. It's very hard to carve. Another thing Adrian picks up from the table is a stick with fur at one end and a small piece of tusk at the other end. The piece of tusk is tied so that it sticks out at right angles to the wooden shaft of the implement. Piece of polar bear fur on one end, and on the other end there's a kind of a little blade. Now what do you think that is? Who would, who would like to guess? A brush, is it? Yeah. No, it's not a brush. It could be, though. Yeah? Scratching your back. It's a back scratcher. Now, that's good. OK, you can scratch your back with the little bit of narwhal tusk at one end, but why would you have a piece of polar bear fur at the other end? Twice as You're not far from the truth, actually. That's closer than you think. Now, when you're living in your furs day and night, because it's too cold to get undressed at night, there's nothing lice-like more than somewhere warm and sweaty. So if you're, if you're dressed in your reindeer fur anorak or your seal fur anorak or your polar bear trousers, you can, do, you can have a lot of lice living down your back. So what you do, you put the little blade down the back and you scratch your back, you loosen all those nasty lice, and then you put the other bit down your back and the lice think, ooh, polar bear fur, that's even nicer than human sweat. And they all jump to the polar bear fur. So you can take it out and you can wash it out in a piece of melted seawater, clean it up, and use it again tomorrow. The class finishes with Adrian asking for a participant from the audience. A little girl gets up and stands in front of him. Now, I haven't got, an, I haven't got another drum I can play. So He's showing them how, in a land miles from police or courts, an argument can be solved with song. You've accused me of stealing fish from your rack, and I say, no, I haven't. So you have to stare at me. The idea is that okay. whoever laughs or smiles first loses the argument. We stick our bums out, that is. And I am now going to sing a Greenland drum song, and you have to stare at me without laughing. All right? Are you ready? already started to laugh, so you have lost the argument, and I have won. <laughs> now imagine Gertie up in the door there, singing for the opposition. A few miles from Drumslide School, 
I mean, well is leak as well. Adrian's chair sits looking out to sea. It's a spare chair that I had nowhere in the house for it. It was an old one. And I came, I bought it down there and just sat on the shore one evening. And it's been there for a year now. It's like a piece of art. It's a, it's a chair in the bog, yes. sitting looking out on the water. I have a photograph of that chair at a particularly high spring tide. And the chair was sitting on its own little tiny island about three or four metres long. The chair is at the edge of his 29 acres. I can come and sit down there whenever I like. You know you're providing free entertainment to the neighbours, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> on the horizon around Adrian are the mountains of Mayo. On one side, a tidal bay, and everywhere else, bog. The Eris Tundra, the journalist Michael Viney calls it. Adrian likes that. It's a link to Greenland. It does give me a little fix, if you like, of Greenland, just to walk out here across the land. It's lovely. I love it dearly. What's the attraction of Greenland for you? Isolation, I suppose. And I don't mean that in any negative sense whatsoever. But it's very good for someone, for all of us, to be made to feel small. And Greenland does that because it is such an immense place. And when you're standing in this landscape and you look at somebody else, the other person, if you like, standing in the landscape who's maybe three or four hundred yards away, and they are literally just a speck. And there's probably no one to their east for 2,000 miles. You suddenly get a feeling of one's own insignificance, mortality... And I think that's good for people because we can all get too big for our boots. And suddenly to find yourself the least important thing in the world almost. It keeps your feet firmly on the ground or on the ice. And I like that feeling. Um, And I like to be reminded of the fact that I'm not important. Was there a time that you were quite self-important? particularly when I left college. You know, you do all this training through childhood, learning the piano and all the rest of it, and then three years at the Royal College of Music and you come out thinking you're God's gift to music. I think every every music student comes out thinking they're great. Across the bog runs a track, and it's not even a boring. At the end of the track, a three-roomed labourer's cottage. It must be well over 100 years old. It's still known as the old horror place. Because when I say to people, I live in Ockness. Whereabouts? As I used to belong to the German couple. Oh, the old horror house. So, yes, the greatest little horror house in Ockness, this one is. There's a screen door for the midges in the summer. Inside the cottage, there are laminated card signs over some of the doorways. They have musical notation on them. Some houses have signs that say bathroom or bedroom or kitchen or whatever. And I thought, well... I could tell people what those rooms were with musical quotations. So, yes, above the, the entrance to the kitchen, I have um, a piece from Vaughan Williams' incidental music to Aristophanes' play The Wasps, and it's the march of the kitchen utensils. You know, you've got to read music to get the joke. The bedroom one has uh, Dreaming, a piano piece by Schumann. And the bathroom, I, was, I thought, well, yeah, I could use the water music. It's the most obvious one. But I was listening to performance of Asis and Galatea, the little opera of Handel's, one of Handel's little operas, and both Asis and Galatea are very happy, and they sing an aria called Happy We, and I thought, oh yeah, that's it. So I have the um, the instrumental introduction to Happy We on my on my bathroom door. Oh yeah, nuts, nuts. There are two main smells in the kitchen: turf from the fire and air freshener. There's an automatic electric air freshener squirting out scent over the neat and cosy interior. 
The living room beside the kitchen is also the main bedroom. To the right as you go in is a grand piano of brown wood, a boudoir piano from 1910, smaller than a concert grand, bigger than a baby grand. I made an arrangement of six Carillon melodies for the piano two years ago for the Greenland tour. And this is number four from the six, young Terence McDonough. I'd love to know who he was, a sad character, I think. Above the piano, at about six and a half feet, is Adrian's bed, supported on one corner by the trunk of a silver birch. You're listening to Flux, a programme of stories with Ronan Kelly. This programme features Adrian Vernon Fish, an English composer who lives in Mayo and who shares his obsession with Greenland with Irish schoolchildren. Adrian's interest in music and Greenland both started when he was in school. I, I wrote my first piece, I think, when I was six. It was the hymn tune for my grandpa to sing in church one Sunday. He was a Methodist and it was a typical Methodist-type tune. His boarding school, however, wasn't too keen on music. When I wanted to do music for the A-level, the headmaster said, my dear boy, he said, this is not a girl's school. You know, and that, that was that. I mean, what a thing to say to a 16-year-old, you know. So I made arrangements to go to another school to attend the music classes for A-level. And I got an A. And then the headmaster had the, the gall. He made a speech to the school about what a credit I was to the school and how well, how great it was and, you know... And he'd done everything, everything in his power to stop me. Adrian didn't need the school's permission to pursue his interest in Greenland, which began with a book about Antarctica. It was about a, a journey by Snowcat to this scientific base in the middle of nowhere, in the, the furthest point, I think, from the coast in Antarctica. But I, I just read and read about Antarctica. And gradually, in reading about the polar regions, my brain latched onto Greenland as a particularly interesting place because here was a northern version of Antarctica but people actually lived there and back in the 1970s I went to the wedding of my then wife's cousin and I was bored rigid and at the reception everybody knew everybody I knew nobody and I was just gazing around the room and standing in the opposite corner was another guy standing over there looking equally wallflowerish and looking bored out of his mind and in the words of John Donne, our eye beams met upon one double string. And I went across to talk to him. And I don't know, we were chatting away about how bored we were, probably. I can't remember. But somehow the subject came round to Greenland. I don't know how. Some engineering on my part, probably. And he suddenly said, we're just publishing a book about Greenland. And I said, what do you mean, we? He said, well, I work for a publisher. We're publishing an Eskimo diary from the 1960s by a man called Tuma Fredriksson. 
And that book inspired my third and my fourth symphonies and uh, a couple of piano pieces and one or two other bits and pieces, I think. Just outside the cottage, there's a sign saying the arse end of nowhere, Adrian's father's sentiments, not his own. Beside that sign is a small circular wooden conservatory and in the window of that, there's a certificate from the Winston Churchill Memorial Foundation. They sponsored one of his trips to Greenland. I discovered that no one had ever been to give a concert tour in Greenland because of the sheer logistics of a place like that. And besides which, I think there were three organs and two pianos in the whole country or something at the time. And I thought, well, I can be the first to do that. I was invited to the island of Kitsisuasuit, and the population of Kitsisuasuit at the time was 105, and 104 people came to the concert. The one man who wasn't at the concert was at the highest point of the island, and the island's only a quarter of a mile long and half a mile wide. He was on the top of the island with his binoculars looking for next month's food. And I was in the middle of a Buxter Who the Prelude and Fugue in the little church on the little electronic organ in there, merrily playing away. And he, this guy who'd been on whale watch, burst in the door of the church and um, shouted, Ah, oh, now I didn't know that that was the Greenlandic for whale at that point, it was one of my earlier visits. Um, I just heard this, what I thought was a very loud curse. And I thought, Does he know the Buxter Who the Prelude and Fugue? Am I playing it wrongly? You know. Um, but they, I couldn't see what was going on. My back was to the audience, you see. So I heard all this clattering and banging and people running around and falling over each other and a lot of laughter going on. And I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to continue playing this fugue. And my page turner, who was the Danish teacher in the school, said, don't worry, he said, they have seen a whale. And basically all the men had got up and had gone. So I finished the concert for all the women and children. Took a walk down to the beach in Kitsisuasuit. And already cut up into piles of meat, little pyramids of meat on the, on, the, on the ice, were the carcasses of five beluga whales, already stripped clean of the meat, ready in piles to be distributed around the houses in the settlement. They'd gone out, grabbed their harpoons, gone down to the beach, gone out in their boats, harpooned five belugas and brought them in within the space of 40 minutes. It can cost thousands of euro to get to and from Greenland, and Adrian wasn't a rich man. He worked in an art centre in the southwest of England and occasionally made some money from composing. His Irish wife taught piano and violin. She didn't share his obsession with Greenland. Adrian has tried to visit Greenland every year. Whenever I'm in Nuuk, which is nearly every year now, I've got dinner parties coming out of my ears, you know. Uh, I, I have to be everywhere. Will you come to us tomorrow? Then you can go to so-and-so on Saturday. You can come to so-and-so on Sunday. And I have so... They're like family now. Adrian went to Greenland in January 2001. He remembers the trip as one of the last good things to happen to him for a long time. On the 3rd of August, my wife walked out on me. I knew she was going because she told me about two or two months earlier. What happened with the marriage? <clears throat> it's difficult to say how it started, but basically I didn't earn enough money. I put almost nothing into the family coffers. Now, my wife was putting most of the money into the family coffers in her job. And she basically, she'd had enough of me not pulling my weight, you could say. And that was the reason for the breakup, unfortunately. It's a, it strikes me as being a rather small reason, but I can understand it. But I can't give up composing, unfortunately. It's something I have to do. Composing is like breathing. If you try and stop, it's mighty uncomfortable. Would she say this interest in Greenland and music and all that is that you're just floating around and you were messing for years and years and years? 
Um, floating around, perhaps not, but Greenland was a large part of the problem because any spare money there was was promoting the Greenland project to start with. So, uh, yeah, I do blame myself in part for persisting with something that was an obsession for me, yes. Three weeks after she left, the aneurysm that I had in my brain at that time but didn't know that that was what it was, burst. I had arrived back from the arts centre where I was working as duty manager and composer in residence. I was running, running a bath, and the next thing I know, I was in hospital. But what had happened, my father was living in the little granny flat on the attached to the house. Now, he is fairly hard of hearing. I was in the bathroom, running the bath, and I fell against the door at the other side of the bathroom, because we had two doors in the bathroom. And one door was the connection to the, the granny flat. And I fell against that door as he was walking past it the other side, which was providential. He came through, found me collapsed on the floor, uh, rang the ambulance, and the ambulance point where they stand, where they park and just wait for the calls, was about 15 to 20 miles away. When he rang the ambulance, they happened to be on their way back from the hospital in Plymouth to the parking point, and they were within a few yards of the house when they got the call, which was astonishing, again, Providence stepping in. And they got me to the hospital, and I was told, had they been five minutes later, I, you know, that would have been the end of me. Then Adrian met a man who was going to move from Britain to Kilkenny to set up a business training people in public speaking. Adrian agreed to move with him, but at the last minute the other man pulled out and Adrian moved to Kilkenny on his own. That lasted several months and then he decided to move on again. This time to Eris in North Mayo. He found the cottage in Ochness where he installed his piano, his music and his Greenland collection. He also brought his golden Labrador, Ishka. Since arriving at the cottage, the dog has died. The cottage was hit by lightning, which burst the cylinder and flooded it. He has a persistent cough for four years from the blood pressure medicine he's had to take after his aneurysm, and he has a wound on his arm that won't heal after the Mayo midges got to it. And the composing hasn't been going too well either. These last three years have been difficult. The muse went on a sabbatical quite some time ago and hasn't come back yet. Adrian has picked up occasional part-time jobs and he does have the odd piano student. There was a week in October 2002 when I didn't eat for a week because I couldn't afford to buy any food. My son came to my rescue on that occasion. But that was then. When you've faced the Grim Reaper, you've kneed him in the balls and told him that only the good die young, then kind of nothing else can depress you in quite the same way. Schools are booking him to talk about Greenland. He wants to take artists as paying guests in the cottage's spare room. 
He says his adult son has asked him to write music for his wedding and that his teenage son comes to visit and shares his interest in Greenland and music. They say Manmala believed that everybody has four blows of fate in their life and the fourth blow is death. Now I had three blows. Divorce, brain hemorrhage and lightning strike all within three years. I'm terrified of the fourth one happening very soon, you know. But things are beginning to look a little more settled. Well, God, I hope so. That was the fifth episode of Flux, produced by Ronan Kelly for RTE Radio 1 in Ireland. If you want to read an interview with Ronan Kelly or catch a glimpse of Adrian Vernon Fish or Roger Dowds, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. There you'll find a link to other episodes of Flux, like the one featuring Baby Peggy, a silent film star who made millions for her family and then watched them lose it all. You can also listen to hundreds of other great documentaries from all over the world. Just go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.